arrive from Asgard, where he's partying with Thor and the gang, it's the Dockiverse Podcast! Episode 142, Doc Tempest and the Secret of the Unicorn. In this episode, we've got a horror movie review, readings from the Docopedia, and a random place. And now, before he once more tries in vain to pick up that hammer, here's Doc! Hi there, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope you've had a good week. I've had a pretty good week. Our garden is going like gangbusters. I've got much more of my yard covered with cardboard and wood chips, which is called sheet mulching, and it will hopefully cut down the number of weeds by about 90% and make the ones who come up easier to pull out of the ground. We have tomatoes almost ripe. We have a melon or two going on. We have some cucumbers. I'm getting a few beans every day. What I do is pick the string beans, clip them off uh, the ends, and then blanch them, and then I freeze them. So eventually we end up with a good-sized bag of beans, but uh, haven't been able to get too many at a time yet. We will once the plants get taller and healthier. Anyway, this episode, the theme is music, so we've got some pretty good uh, selections with music in them, uh, including the horror movie review, which I had many versions of to choose from, and I went and chose the first one. And, speaking of choosing, I wish to thank my patrons, who choose to send me money, and are just wonderful. They're good folks, and I bet all of them have pretty good musical talent. So, thank you, Avis. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Lori. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, David. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Marion. Y'all are great. I hope you enjoy the show. Our horror movie review for this month has... I don't even know how many movies made from it. It's probably got at least a dozen. I've seen at least six or seven versions of this movie. But the one I'm going to review is the very first one. And the movie is The Phantom of the Opera. It's a 1925 American silent horror film adaptation of Gaston Leroux's 1910 novel Le Fantôme opera, And I hope I pronounced that right. I probably butchered that French, but what can I say? It was directed by Rupert Julian and starring Lon Chaney in the title role of the deformed phantom who haunts the Paris Opera House, causing murder and mayhem in an attempt to make the woman he loves a star. Uh, that's really probably most of the plot I'm going to get into, so I'm not going to do a lot of plot stuff. Besides, If you haven't seen The Phantom of the Opera in some form, including the Broadway version, which played, I think it's still playing on Broadway, uh, you know, go and watch it and then come back and listen to the review. The film remains the most famous for Cheney's ghastly, self-devised makeup, which was kept a studio secret until the film's premiere. The picture also features Mary Philbin, Norman Carey, Arthur Edmund Crewe, Gibson Gallon, and... John St. Paulus, and someone who's got a cool name, Snitz Edwards. 
The last surviving cast member was Carla Lemo. She died in 2014. She was the niece of producer Carl Lemo, and she played a small role as a prima ballerina. She was about 15 years old when she did that. The film was released September 6, 1925, and it premiered at the Astor Theater in New York, and the film's final budget was $632,357, which in 1925 was a big damn sack of money. In 1953, the film entered the public domain in the United States because the claimants did not renew its copyright, and that's what happens. It's happened to a lot of movies, actually. So, like I said, the plot is based on the uh, story by Gaston LaRue, and um, you have Lon Chaney as the deformed, uh, messed-up musical genius that haunts the opera house, and he does all sorts of killing and stuff to make his lady love famous. Um, this movie is one of those seminal movies that did a whole bunch of stuff that hadn't been done before, or hadn't been done as well. Uh, Lon Chaney was known as the Man of a Thousand Faces, and by golly, he really got into his makeup and art, as anyone who's ever seen a Lon Chaney movie will know. He uh, did some incredible things to his face, and we will get to those here in just a moment. But first, let's talk about a few members of the cast and who they played. Well, Lon Chaney played the Phantom. Mary Philbin played Christine Daae. Norman Carey was the Vicomte Raoul de Chani. Arthur Edmund Carew was Le Doux. Gibson Gallen was Simone Bouquet. And that's all the people I'm going to go into because on Wikipedia, the cast list is very long, longer than most other movies would have. Uh, it lists everybody. The guy who plays um, Mephistopheles in one of the play uh, operas, um, just a whole bunch of people. Now, the pre-production stuff is that in 1922, Carl Lemel, the president of Universal Pictures, took a vacation to Paris. And during his vacation, he met author Gaston Leroux, who was working in the French film industry. Lemel mentioned to Leroux that he admired the Paris Opera House. Leroux gave Lemel a copy of his 1910 novel, The Phantom of the Opera. Lemel read the book in one night and bought the film rights as a vehicle for actor Lon Chaney. Production was scheduled for late 1924 at Universal Studios. By the way, Phantom of the Opera, the very first Universal Studios monster. The filmmakers were unfamiliar with the layout of the Paris Opera House and consulted Ben Carré, a French art director who had worked at the opera and was familiar with LaRue's novel. He said LaRue's depiction of the opera cellars was based more on imagination than fact. Carré created 24 detailed charcoal sketches, and the filmmakers replicated those. The screenplay was written by Elliot J. Clausen, who had worked as the scenario writer of director Rupert Julian since 1916. His first script was a close adaptation of LaRue and included scenes from the novel that never appeared in the film, such as the Phantom summoning Christine to her father's grave in Brittany, where he poses in the cemetery as the Angel of Music and plays the resurrection of Lazarus on his violin at midnight. The scene was filmed by Rupert Julian, but it was excised after he left the project. 
So, inspired by the novel, Clausen added a lengthy flashback to Persia, where Eric, the Phantom, served as a conjurer and executioner in the court of a depraved sultana, using his Punjab lasso to strangle prisoners. Falling from her favor, Eric was condemned to be eaten alive by ants. Since he was rescued by the Persian, the sultan's chief of police, who became Inspector Ledoux in the final version of the film, but not before the ants had consumed most of his face. The flashback was eliminated during subsequent story conferences, possibly for budgetary reasons. Yes, I imagine that was probably it. Instead, a line of dialogue was inserted to explain that Eric had been the chief torturer and inquisitor during the Paris Commune, when the opera served as a prison with no explanation for his damaged face. The studio considered the novel's ending too low-key, but Clausen's third revised script retained the scene of Christine giving the Phantom a compassionate kiss. He is profoundly shaken and moans, Even my own mother would never kiss me. So, there were changes from the scripts, as there always are in movies, and I really think the movie comes out the better for what they put on the screen. Now, production began in mid-October and did not go smoothly. According to the director of photography, Charles Van Inger, Cheney and the rest of the cast and crew had strained relations with director Rupert Julian. Eventually, the star and director stopped talking, so Van Enger served as a go-between. He would report Julian's directions to Cheney, who responded, Tell him to go to hell. As Van Enger remembered, Lon did whatever he wanted. Rupert Julian became Universal's prestige director by completing The Merry-Go-Round in 1923, close to budget, after original director Eric von Stroheim had been fired. But on the set of the family opera, his directorial mediocrity was obvious to the crew. According to Van Enger, Julian had wanted the screen to go black after the chandelier fell on the opera audience. Van Enger ignored him and lit the scene with a soft glow, so the horrific aftermath of the fall would be visible to the film's audience. The ending changed yet again during filming, with the scripted chase scene through Paris being discarded in favor of an unscripted and more intimate finale. To save Raoul, Christine agrees to wed Eric and she kisses his forehead. Eric is overcome by Christine's purity and his own ugliness. Mob enters, blah, blah, blah. By mid-November 1924, the majority of Cheney's scenes had been filmed. Principal photography was completed just before the end of the year, with 350,000 feet of negative exposed. That's a lot of film for a silent movie. Editor Gilmore Walker assembled a rough cut of nearly four hours, the studio demanded a length of no more than 12 reels. I'm not quite sure how long 12 reels are, but I'm sure shit ain't four hours. A score was prepared by Joseph Carl Briel. No information about the score survives other than Universal's release, presented with augmented concert orchestra, playing the score composed by J. Carl Briel, composer of music for The Birth of a Nation. Um... I have actually seen this movie when it has had um, music added to it. And um, yeah, it makes it a lot better. The first cut of the film was previewed in Los Angeles on January 7th and 26, 1925. Audience reactions were extremely negative and summed up by the complaint, there's too much spook melodrama. Put in some gags to relieve the tension. By March, the studio had decided against the ending and decided the Phantom should not be redeemed by a woman's kiss. Better to have kept him a devil to the end. 
the redemptive ending is now lost, with only a few frames still surviving. The New York premiere was cancelled, and the film was rushed back into production with a new script that focused more on Christine's love life. It is unknown whether Rupert Julian walked away from the production or was fired. In any case, his involvement with the film had ended. To salvage the film, Universal called upon the journeyman of its Hoot Gibson westerns, and he worked cheaply and quickly. So, now we get into the makeup of Lon Chaney. I was going to read more about the production, but it goes on forever. Now, following the success of Hunchback of Notre Dame, excuse me, that's the first Universal monster, in 1923, Chaney was once again given the freedom to create his own makeup, a practice which became almost as famous as the films he starred in. Chaney commented, In the Phantom of the Opera, people exclaimed at my weird makeup. I achieved the death's head of that role without wearing a mask. It was the use of paints and the right shades and the right places, not the obvious parts of the face, which gave the complete illusion of horror. It's all a matter of combining paints and lights to form the right illusion. Cheney used a color illustration from the novel by André Castain as his model for the Phantom's appearance. He raised the contour of his cheekbones by stuffing wadding inside his cheeks. He used a skull cap to raise his forehead height several inches and accentuate the bald dome of the phantom's skull. Pencil lines masked the joint of the skull cap and exaggerated his brow lines. Cheney then glued his ears to his head and painted his eye sockets black, adding white highlights under his eyes for a skeletal effect. He created a skeletal smile by attaching prongs to a set of rotting false teeth and coated his lips with grease paint. To transform his nose, Cheney applied putty to sharpen its angles and inserted two loops of wire in his nostrils. Guide wires hidden under the putty pulled his nostrils upward. According to the cinematographer Charles Van Enger, Cheney suffered from his makeup, especially the wires, which sometimes made him bleed like hell. Folks, there is no damn way on God's green earth that any major star nowadays would go through that shit to look that way. And really, they wouldn't have to. We have a different technology. They use silicon stuff. They glue it to people's faces. And they can get any effect they want. Lon Chaney would have been amazed by this. However, nobody would have done that. Nobody did it back then. You know, that was just... Chaney was incredible. I mean, he just... There are makeup artists who would bow down before him even today. When audiences first saw the movie... They were said to have screamed or fainted during the scene where Christine pulls the concealing mask away, revealing his skull-like features to the audience. I know for a fact that that's true, because when I was a kid, actually when I was almost a teenager, a friend's grandmother, who went to see this when she was like 15 years old, with her family, said that her mother and her aunt and her and her two sisters all screamed, and so did a whole lot of women in the audience and more than a few men. So that makeup scared the crap out of people back then. Initial response to the film was mixed. Mordaunt Hall of the New York Times gave the film a positive review as a spectacle picture, but felt that the story and acting may have been slightly improved. Time magazine praised the sets, but felt the picture was only pretty good. Variety wrote, The Phantom of the opera is not a bad film from a technical viewpoint, 
but revolving around the terrifying of all inmates of the Grand Opera House in Paris by a criminally insane mind behind a hideous face, the combination makes a Welsh rabbit look foolish as a sleep destroyer. So, yeah, that's a mouthful of stuff, basically to say it was a scary movie. Modern response to the movie is different. Roger Ebert awarded the film four out of four stars, writing it creates beneath the opera one of the most grotesque places in the cinema, and Cheney's performance transforms an absurd character into a haunting one. Adrian Wilson of Pop Matters gave the film eight out of ten stars, summarizing overall the Phantom of the Opera is terrific, unsettling, beautifully shot, and imbued with a dense and shadowy gothic atmosphere. With such a strong technical and visual grounding, it would have been difficult for Cheney to totally muck things up, and his performance is indeed integral, elevating an already solid horror drama into the realms of legendary cinema. After the successful introduction of sound during 1928-29 movie season, Universal announced they had secured the rights to a sequel to The Phantom of the Opera from the Gaston LaRue estate entitled The Return of the Phantom, the picture would have had sound and it would have been in color. Universal could not use Cheney in a film as he was now under contract with MGM. Universal later scrapped the sequel and instead opted to reissue The Phantom of the Opera with a new synchronized score and sound effects track. It made them another million dollars. The success of Phantom of the Opera inspired Universal to finance the production of a long string of horror films through to the 1950s, starting with the base stories of Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, Invisible Man, and The Wolfman, and continue with numerous sequels to all five films. Folks, like I said, this is an excellent movie. Some of the uh, later versions are worth watching, too. Some of them, not quite so much. But, yeah, The Phantom of the Opera, if you've never seen the silent version with Lon Chaney, you really, really should. And I hope you do. And that, folks, is the rather longer than I expected movie review for this month. And we'll have another one next month. All right, folks, it is time for readings from the Doctopedia. And since our theme is music, I've dug through the thousands of Doctopedia entries to find these. Doclopedia number 2497, Lost Movies of Earth 2B, Redheads on Broadway, 1931. This movie was just one of many musical comedies made in the 30s, and it was nothing special unless you count the focus on redheaded showgirls in a black-and-white movie. The songs, dance pieces, jokes, and all important romances are merely okay. However, Two things make this lost movie important. First of all, it was the first movie directed by Jane Garwell, who later directed dozens of films popular with both the public and critics. In her autobiography, the four-time Oscar winner described Redheads on Broadway as a hell of a first movie to direct due to all the musical numbers, but that it was a great learning experience. The other thing that stands out about the movie is that it had the first adult performance of Ted... Teddy the Kid, Farmer, former popular child star in silent movies. Farmer went on to become a successful second-string leading man in the 30s and 40s, then a busy character actor from the 50s to the 80s. 
Sadly, like other movies on this list, all copies of it were lost in a 1950 Pittsburgh film warehouse fire. Only about 2.5 minutes of footage remained. The Doclopedia, number 2357, Out in the Woods, You'll Hear Strange Music. Do you hear it, amigo? Tonight, it sounds like violins and cellos. Last week, it was like gentle piano music, but with an echo. Always it is different, always it is strange. People coming to these woods have been hearing that music for at least 100 years. It drives some of them to go in search of the source, but they have yet to find it. My own grandfather went in search of it, 90 years ago. He went out there and was gone for 15 days. My grandmother feared he was dead. When he returned, he told of hearing the music several times each day, but never in the same direction. He also spoke of bright but tiny points of light that seemed to move with the music. During his stories, he would often pause and just stare off into the distance. Shortly after his 93rd birthday, he walked into the forest and was never seen again. I do not know what makes the music, or if it is good, evil, or neither. What I do know is that I will never go searching for it, and I advise you not to do it. Some mysteries should remain mysteries. The Doclopedia, number 2,333, Strange Bandanas, the Bollywood one. I own hundreds of bandanas. Many of them have strange stories connected to them. Here is one. I really can't tell you the story of how I got this bandana back in 1977 because the favor I did to get it was big and needs to remain confidential. What I can say is that this brightly colored bandana allows me to dance like I'm in an Indian musical with music playing. And when I dance, everyone around me joins in, perfectly choreographed. It's fucking amazing, folks. It's also hella funny. As a side power, it also lets me eat really spicy hot Indian food without breaking a sweat. A power I use way more than the dancing. I'm not sure if it would let me do crazy car and gun stunts, or attempt to seduce a beautiful young Indian lady, and at my age, I'm not going to try. But, damn, that dancing sure is fun. And we have a random place. And this time, it's a roadhouse. Now, if you don't know what a roadhouse is, it's basically your little beer joint out in the country somewhere, outside of town, sometimes way outside of town. And it's not fancy. They were, you know, right there at the side of the road. and People would park and go on in and drink and dance, listen to music. A lot of uh, country western performers back in the 30s and 40s got their start playing in roadhouses. And... Um, same thing with some blues singers and stuff like that. And the big thing that you can use a roadhouse for in a game is just as a place for your characters to go and let off some steam and have some fun and maybe find something out. Possibly get in a fist fight. Maybe get laid. Uh, here's some information. That's always a possibility no matter where they go. Uh, stuff like that. But... If you want to add a little more meat to the roadhouse experience, maybe they're bringing in the beer or the booze. Now, if these roadhouses are open during Prohibition, then 
they're being real secretive about getting that booze there. If it's not prohibition, they still may have to get it there, but there may be somebody that doesn't want them to get it there so that they can go ahead and sell their beer or booze to the roadhouse owner. It could also be that there's stuff going on in the roadhouse that uh, maybe they want cracked down on. Now, if you saw the movie Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze, there you go. Um, there might be competitors trying to destroy the place, trying to ruin it, trying to drive people away from it, and you're there to stop them. Or, if you're playing bad characters, maybe you're there to fuck up the roadhouse. It could be that you're the musicians. It could be that you're government agents there trying to bust this uh, you know, illegal booze operation going. There might be gambling going on. You're investigating that. Maybe the roadhouse is the last known place where a friend of yours was seen. Um, there's all sorts of things you can use a roadhouse for. So whatever you use it for, whatever genre you use it in, have fun. And of course, let me know if you use it. Okay, folks, it is the end of the program, and it is time for me to thank you all for listening. And I do thank you. It's great. If you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, I can be reached on Facebook, where I'm Doc Cross, on WordPress at the Docverse blog, on the Mastodon Dice Camp server as Doc Cross, via email at agentroscoe at gmail.com. If you're listening to Anchor, you're probably listening to a program that's three months old, but you can still leave a voicemail. If you patrons want to leave me a message, and I would really love to hear from you, just uh, leave a message on the Patreon page and I'll hear about it real quickly because they'll send me a text and an email. If you'd like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts two months before they go up on Anchor, go to www.patreon.com forward slash doccross and pledge for as little as a dollar a month. For one-time or occasional donations, use my coffee page, that's ko-fi, and there you'll find me as Cross 4591 If you'd like to sponsor this podcast or advertise it, get in touch with me by any of the methods that I mentioned earlier, and we will work out a deal, and I will probably give you a big hug. Our music was an unnamed instrumental by Big Sandy and his Fly Right Boys off of the Free Music Archive. This podcast and everything on it is copyright 2023 by Doc Cross. I'll see you all next week. Live long and prosper.